0: Today, we're not in the Old Testament. This morning, we are in the New Testament, starting in, uh, with the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reading will be uh, the first nine verses of chapter one. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is a corn, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of our lord jesus christ their lord and ours grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ i thank my god always concerning you for the grace of god which was given you in christ jesus that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony concerning christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. I want to take a moment to welcome all our live stream folks, too, um, there's folks that wish they were here, but they're joining us via the computer. Um, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. So join me in prayer, please. Lord, what a majest, majestic thing we sang about is is what a great Savior you are, um, how you have redeemed us, you've called us, you've made us clean. As, as We don't come to before you having scrubbed ourselves and and made ourselves better, Lord. We would never be able to achieve that. But Jesus came, and he took our sin, he took our stain, and he makes us acceptable before your throne. And Lord, What can we do but praise you for that? What an immeasurably huge gift that you've given to us. Thank you for your grace. And uh, this morning, Lord, I want to pray for our previous pastor, Daniel, as he has preached his last sermon at Calvary. EV free in New Jersey, and um, Lord, uh, looking forward, where are you going to call him to next? What's the next thing he's going to be doing, uh, Lord? I ask that you would um, connect him with his your next steps, your plans for him for his future soon, as he's got to make some big decisions soon. And Lord, I pray that as he's continuing to go through chemo and all of those things, that that you would continue to provide for his medical treatment too. And and Lord, we pray for Linda and her peace in all of this that she would uh, find a, a way to find trust and announce trust in you, even when this uh, future is uncertain. And Lord, that's just not a guarantee we have, is that we always know what's going to come next. But the guarantee we do have is God is good and faithful and true to his people. So, Lord, we, we ask you to do that for Daniel and Linda, as you call them to their next step in ministry, where, where you will use them next. And, Father, I want to pray for Calvary Evangelical Free, as Daniel is stepping out of that role. Um, who will you call to be their next pastor lord i pray that that person would be a blessing to them as as big a blessing as daniel has been and maybe even bigger someone who will lead them well that uh, will help that church grow in the grace of jesus christ as they come to know him better so lord have mercy on them and lead them well we pray and lord the other person i want to pray for this morning is our sister joanne um, in the assisted care Uh, lord she's uh not doing as well as she had previously been doing, and so Lord, I ask that you would be with her to strengthen her her hope and her, her faith in you, as uh, as she's not doing as well. And Lord, thank you for the the friends and the the family members who have been surrounding her and and helping to uh, guard her care. And so, Lord, I want to pray for the people who work at the center. Lord, would you help them to pay close attention to Joanne's needs and and, um, and provide for her. Uh, see her as a, a person created in God's image, worthy of of honor and care and respect, and uh, treat her that way. And so, Lord, would you be walking with her through this difficult time and and providing for her? Thank you for our church's response, and I pray that we just magnify it. That we would be there with her even more. And Lord, we ask these things because she is our brother, our sister in Christ. But Lord, would you be with us now as we start this this challenging book of First Corinthians? Help us to understand what it is that you have to say. What are you telling us through the first Corinthians this morning? Help us to see that, to believe it, to apprehend it, carry it in our hearts. And Lord, may it uh, um, renew our minds as we go through our week. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. On uh, September 15th, that was not this past Friday, but the Friday before, a young man named Joshua Hamies tweeted, uh, he posted on on Twitter, how post-millennialism destroyed my church plant. Now, I'll explain all of those words because it gets a little hairy, but I just thought it was a really interesting story. So let me back up. This is based on his tweet, which is short, so I don't have a lot of details, but kind of tell his story and then help unpack what he means by that. So the story goes, six years ago, Joshua and two other 24-year-olds formed a church planting team, and they moved to Los Angeles to start a church. Um, And... You got to admire their sense of adventure, their dedication to the mission, the sacrifices that they had to give to move to L.A. to do that. That's not an easy place to plant a church. And so this is how Joshua describes it. He says, not a single person in our church owned a home in the city, nor were there any prospects of ever owning a home where we lived. The young couples who had committed struggled for years to find a godly spouse the dating pool in L.A. for godly spouses sparse, to say the least. We had young couples putting off having children for financial reasons, and other families who dreamed of starting businesses but knew they couldn't do that in our location. That's the kind of sacrifice they made to move to L.A. to start a church. That's it's it's an extremely um, expensive place to live. Um, it's a hard place. There's there's resistance to the gospel, and so you just. You know, I I read that first line. I was like, this is amazing that they would do that. Um, But then things changed. Uh, Joshua goes on. He says, and then in the span of about six months, as we were preaching through the book of Daniel, all three of us pastors came to post-millennial convictions. Let me unpack that a little bit. Before I explain what post-millennial means, I just want to say it's a nuanced position. There's, There's some finessing to it and that kind of thing. I don't think it would be accurate to say that because they were preaching through Daniel, they came to post-millennial convictions. I think a better, a more accurate description of what happened is as they were preaching through Daniel and reading somebody else, certain commentators or certain other theologians, they came to post-millennial convictions. It's, it's just a nuanced position. And let me, now as I explain what that means, you'll see what I mean by that. So what is post-millennial? Post-millennial. Well, when when we're talking about eschatology, end times, what happens at the end? And when you hear the term millennial in that sense, it's not the generation, the millennial generation. It has to do with Jesus' reign, when when he is reigning on the earth or reigning, period. Um, That comes from Revelation 20. It says that Jesus will reign for a thousand years. That's what a millennium is. So the different eschatological positions have to do with when will Jesus return? Pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, that kind of question. So post-millennialism at its simplest, basest idea is this. Jesus died. He rose again three days later. He worked and taught with his disciples for 40 days. And then before he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, go and make disciples of the nations. And then he ascended into heaven and is seated at the throne of God in glory. All the eschatological positions agree with it. That's that's just common across all of them. Where you see postmillennialism begin to depart and head in its own direction is what comes next. Which is postmillennialism believes that Jesus told the church, "Go and make disciples of all nations." The church will do that. There will come a time when the church succeeds over the whole globe, and the most of the the, the uh, world will be Christians. And they get that from Habakkuk. Habakkuk said. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so post-millennialists look at that and say, that's what's going to happen. The church will succeed and will make most of the world Christian. That's, that's the hope. It's a very optimistic uh, position. So what will happen is the church will rule the world for a period of about 1,000 years, not literally a 1,000. It's not you know, taken in that way. 1,000 is kind of emblematic of, a really good, full, appropriate long time. The church will rule the world. And there will be peace and prosperity like has never been seen before. It'll be wonderful. But at the end, there'll be a revolution. There'll be a revolt against Christian rule. And in that revolt, Jesus will then return, judge the living and the dead, new heavens and new earth. So he returns post millennial after the reign. He reigns in and through his church on the earth. And then he returns to the earth when that reign is over. So that's what post millennialism means does that make sense does that sound pretty simple all right here's the question how on earth could that blow up a church plant I would assume that having that optimistic of a view of the gospel would not blow it up but would really empower it we're gonna win we know how this is gonna go let's go do this well the reason is because there's more theological positions that attend post millennialism than just that optimistic view of the gospel And so I want to cover just a couple so I can explain and lead us to why would that blow up a church plant. So here's the first one. The first idea that kind of goes with, it's not always, there's no theological position where everybody agrees on every little thing in it. But generally speaking, with post-millennial evangelicals, they tend to believe in infant baptism. So what that means is a child who is born of at least one believing parent is a member of the covenant and should be baptized and so they baptize their infants Um, that won't blow up a church plant and not everybody who believes in infant baptism is post-mill but this is like i said it's a little nuanced so they believe in infant baptism they believe that the children that you have are automatically members of the new covenant and the more extreme positions within post-millennialism believe that these children are not only entitled to baptism but they should be given communion so if you have a baptized infant, there are some that will take a piece of the bread and put it in the baby's mouth and pour a little bit of the grape juice in their mouth or wine, typically. Because what they believe is this child, since this child is born into the new covenant, this child is entitled to all the benefits and all the blessings of the new covenant. That includes communion. That includes in some cases, regeneration, justification, eternal salvation, all of these things belong to this covenant child so this is this is kind of one branch of what that looks like within postmillennialism. That'll be important when we come back and and say why does this blow up a church plant what's going on, Uh, the other concept is uh, something what will it look like when the church is ruling. How will we rule the world, what will we do as we're ruling the world, what will we implement as rules, and this comes to a concept called theonomy. And theonomy is, is really two simple Greek words. Theos is God, and nomos is law. So theonomy is God's law. So what the postmillennialists, some of the postmillennialists believe is the church will ascend in the power structures of the world, in government, in military, in entertainment, in education, and all of these things, and we will then implement God's law as the rule of the land. And that's what will bring peace and prosperity. Now, what that looks like in some of these folks, some of the the kind of more to the uh, extreme version of that is it can be things like we will enforce Sabbath laws. No one will do any business on Sunday. You won't force people to go to church, but there won't be much else for them to do. Um, So Sabbath laws, they might enforce uh, um, blasphemy laws, where if you speak poorly of the church or of Jesus Christ or of God, You could be arrested, you could be even executed decency rules they will enforce homosexuality laws and and decency decent dress rules and those kind of things. Go back and look at the old covenant and that's what it'll look like some of them, and not all of them, but a, a, a small minority believe that they will implement the dietary laws that we won't eat non kosher food under this. So what's going on with this, why, why does this all fit together that way, because the idea that the post millennialist has. And this is where you see this very subtle shift is when they say Disciple, make disciples of the nations. They mean nations. National entities are to be discipled. We will make an entire nation Christian by taking over that governmental structure. Now, what we mean when we say go and make disciples of all nations is go into all the people groups go into all the nations around the world and preach the gospel and make individual disciples and bring them to christ what they're thinking is more structurally we're going to we're going to take over the the power structures within a civilization and make it christian so why does that blow up a church plant because they don't think that what they're doing is helpful listen to how he described it he said joshua goes on and he says all of a sudden. The fact that my parishioners were putting off getting married, having children, starting Christian businesses, all to help a church plant in a place where virtually none of them could ever afford to live revealed itself to be totally reckless and irresponsible. I was calling people to put off having dominion, being fruitful and multiplying all so that we could plant a church that statistically would likely not last 20 years. So he saw, he came to believe because of the post-millennial, that, that theological stuff that goes with it, it's a waste of time to go to L.A. and try to win individual people to Christ because we can't have dominion. That goes back to Genesis 1. God told, uh, uh, made them male and female and said, have dominion over the earth. They're not having dominion because they're not taking over the power structures within society. They're, they're, they're at such a huge disadvantage in L.A., it won't work. So they saw that as a waste of time. That is not how we're going to complete the Great Commission. So he says, he goes on and he kind of explains the post-millennial perspective. This This is kind of the end of the tweet. He says, if you believe that Christ and his church will successfully disciple the nations, not make disciples from the nations, but disciple the nations, you start asking completely different questions. Instead of how can I be a faithful witness right now, you're starting to ask, how do we advance his kingdom in our generation and set our great grandchildren up for even greater kingdom success? And so ironically, it was this great post-millennial hope that led to the destruction of our little church plant. Post-millennialism requires the believer to totally rethink his great commission tactics. If we're going to successfully disciple our nation, we have got to start thinking long-term. And so what they did was they disbanded the church, they moved to uh, found a church in Nashville that held to post-millennial convictions, and they started raising kids and starting businesses, and they're gonna take over from there instead of going to LA. Why on earth do I bring that up as an introduction to 1 Corinthians? It ain't my fault. Joshua started it. He ends his tweet with a, one of the favorite post-millennial quotes. It's from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So what, as I read that thing and I got to that reminder at the end, I went, oh, my gosh. So he went to L.A. with all of these opposition to the gospel, all of this hard place to go, all of this struggle that he's facing, and he decided it was time to leave L.A. and abandon the church, just desert, dis- dissolve the church. And I thought, what would have happened after he finished preaching Daniel if they'd gone on to 1 Corinthians? Because if you wanna find a parallel between LA and and ancient times, Corinth is not a bad place to go. It's pretty similar to the situation in LA. Corinth was not the political power center of the Greek empire. That was Athens. It it wasn't the economic powerhouse of the the nation either. But Corinth was a very large city. The population in the first century is probably around 80,000, which for an ancient city is pretty big it was situated you know how greek has got greece has got that kind of bulbous peninsula and then there's the mainland there's an isthmus that connects the two corinth is right there at that isthmus so all the trade that went back and forth between those went through corinth corinth was a rich rich city it wasn't a political center of gravity but it was politically significant that's very much like la la is not the political capital of the united states that's washington dc It's not the economic powerhouse of of the United States. It's more diverse than that. But they got Hollywood and they got Burbank and they got a lot of money down there. And so it's very much like the situation that was in Corinth. And so when we look through the book of 1 Corinthians, you hear all these struggles that the church is having. They got them because that was the culture in Corinth at the time, it was absorbed into the church. Sexual immorality, sexual uh, ethics were quite liberal in, in Corinth. So much so that when we get to this one point in the book, it turns out there's a man living with, sleeping with his mother-in-law, or his, his stepmother, rather. I'm sorry. He's, he's sleeping with his stepmother, his, his father's wife. And the church, instead of disciplining him and going, you can't do that, they're applauding him and going, look what liberty we have in Jesus. Isn't this wonderful? The sexual ethics in, in, in Corinth were very Greek. And so people with power and authority could do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, with whoever they wanted. They had the power and the authority. They win. There was um, just a number of issues like that. Let me, I think one of the commentators, Craig Bloomberg, really summed it up well. Let me read his summary of what's going on in the church. And this, again, reflects what's going on in Corinth as a a whole. He says, powerful leaders promote themselves against each other, each with his own band of loyal followers. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother, and instead of disciplining him, many in the church boast of his freedom in Christ. Believers sue each other in secular courts. Some like to visit prostitutes. As a backlash against this rampant immorality, another faction of the church is promoting celibacy, complete sexual abstinence, as the Christian ideal. Still, others debate. uh, Still, other debates rage about how decisively new Christians should break from their pagan past. Disagreements about men's and women's roles in the church add to the confusion. And if that were all not enough, alleged property, prophecies and speaking in tongues occur regularly, but not always in a constructive fashion. A significant number of these Christians do not even believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just wonder if Joshua and his team had gone to 1 Corinthians, if they might not have seen their situation reflected and heard Paul, instead of saying, you Christians, you've got to get out of there. You've got to split. Instead, what Paul did is he, he wrote to the Corinthians and he says, you have to remain faithful in the midst of this. You have to stand out and be different in this. And I just wonder if Joshua hadn't come to a different conclusion had he preached 1 Corinthians next. Now, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the guy. I don't even know where, what he's doing. I know he's in Nashville someplace. But I was reading the responses to the tweets, and he seems like a genuinely nice guy. He was very, very kind, even with people who are criticizing him but I just think he got it wrong. I think Corinthians might have corrected him on that. So this morning, we're gonna, we're gonna dip our toes into 1 Corinthians, we're gonna start into the book. And I want you to have in mind what that looks like for that church. Because it, the, the problems that the Corinthian church faced are problems that we face in America too. In addition to what Bloomberg wrote, I would also say there was great income inequality because people would come to the Lord's Supper and one person would get drunk and you know, feasted till they were ready to pop and somebody else would get nothing because they couldn't afford to bring any food. There were also in, in the Corinthian church flouting social conventions of, of modesty. The, the question of head coverings and all of that stuff, that was them saying, well, we don't have to do that. So all of that kind of stuff is, is very similar to what we're facing even here in the shadow of LA, just as we watch Western culture drift away from a Christian mooring, we're gonna stand out more like this. And so I think Corinthians is gonna be really helpful to us. It's gonna address a lot of these questions that seem ancient, but I think are gonna have really good modern contemporary applications. And so let's take a look. We'll start at the, just the standard introduction. This is how you wrote a Greek letter. You identified yourself and who you're writing to, a standard blessing and then the prayer of thanksgiving. And that's what Paul does. But when Paul does it, he, he redeems it. He, he bathes it in Christianity. And so even this little bit is going to be really important for him because he's going to make it a Christian greeting in the letter. So he starts out in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So Paul starts with his apostleship. It's not like he was playing power games here and trying to say, hey, I'm more important than you. He is bringing up his apostleship because it will be questioned. In chapter 9, we're going to hear that some of the people at Corinth are going, is he really even an apostle? Does that even count? So when we get there, we'll have to unpack what is an apostle, what does that mean, and what's Paul one, and what's going on. But Paul starts with one of the issues of contention. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And our brother Sosthenes, not sure who Sosthenes was, when Paul, in Acts 18, when Paul went to Corinth and he preached the gospel, uh, there is a man named Sosthenes mentioned. He was the leader of the synagogue in, in Corinth, and they pulled him out and beat him because they thought that the synagogue was the source of the, the upheavals going on. So this could be that same Sosthenes. Maybe he came to, to believe in Jesus Christ after that event. We don't know. Um, what was probably going on is, is, is Paul would more often than not dictate his letters. Because when you get to the end of Galatians, he, says, he picks up the pen and he goes, look at with what great letters I write big huge letters he probably had bad eyesight so papyrus is too expensive to let him write it you just dictate it we'll have somebody else write it down so that's probably what Sosthenes is doing never gonna hear from him again so thanks Sosthenes. appreciate it so then he goes on and he says to the church of god that is in corinth to those sanctified in christ jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call in the name of jesus christ uh, our lord jesus christ both their lord and ours So he says, the church of God in Corinth. Um, I don't know about you, but when I thought of that, I just pictured like a small group of believers, like maybe a house church. The reality was Corinth was so big, this was probably a large network of of house churches. Because back in the first century, they didn't have buildings like we have now. Um, And, you know, at best, they might be able to take over a synagogue, but those weren't huge buildings either. And so this is probably a bunch of small house churches scattered around Corinth. And so the way that the, the, the church would operate then is you would have um, what we would call an elder, but what was typically referred to as a bishop. And the bishop would maybe be over a handful of these house churches and visit and, and, and care for them. So Paul is writing to that kind of a church. It's a larger group of people scattered throughout the city. He writes to the church of God in Corinth. So this isn't the Corinthian church. This isn't the church that belongs to the Corinthians. This is God's church and it's God's church in the city of Corinth. So as we're here, we're in Lancaster, we're, this, we're God's church in Lancaster. Now that doesn't mean there's, there's a, a, a cult that thinks there's only one church in every city, and they're it, by the way. So there's a church here in the valley called the Church of the Antelope Valley, and they think that's it, that's them. That's just not biblical. The Bible talks about multiple churches, and I think this kind of would show it. This would be multiple churches scattered around the city Referred to the church as the church in Corinth. Not one single one, but multiples. The church in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. To be sanctified in Christ Jesus. If you think about what we just said was going on in Corinth, do they sound sanctified? Sanctified is comes from the word sanctus, which means to be made holy. This does not sound like a holy church to me. This sounds like a train wreck. These people are living bizarre lives, but Paul wants to start by reminding them you're sanctified. And I think that's important for us to remember is we are not sanctified because we got our act together and behave really well. I, I'm, I don't do all of those things that I really want to do, but I don't do them, therefore I'm sanctified. That's not the first primary meaning of sanctification. This is past tense to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Because you have put your trust in Jesus, because you said, I believe in him, I believe that he is my righteousness. I believe that he has taken the burden of my sin, therefore I am sanctified in him. I am made holy in God's sight because of what Jesus has done for me. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, it's a past event. But that's not the only way that the Bible talks about sanctification. It is a a forensic, it is an announcement, you are holy in Christ. That is a done deal. But that doesn't mean God leaves you in that state of a mess and just kind of paces over it. We are also being sanctified, uh, Hebrews ten fourteen for any, uh, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified, we are in the process of being sanctified, in other words God has pronounced this is you, you are holy, you are holy in my sight, and then he says now let me make you holy, let me ma- let you grow into what I've already declared you to be, so we are being sanctified in his sight. And so that, that's the, the glory of this is that he doesn't go to the Corinthians and go, if you don't get your act together, you're not holy. He starts by reminding them, you are holy. Now act that way. Live up to that. Be what, you, what God has done for you. And so there's a way in which we will be sanctified in the end. And so in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May he bring you to that state of sanctification. There there are some denominations who teach something called complete sanctification, and that idea is while you're still alive, before you pass away, you can become absolutely sinless. You can stop sinning, and that's complete sanctification. That's not complete sanctification. It's not realistic. We're we're always going to have that struggle. Paul is not telling us, look to your own sanctification. Look to being made perfect and spotless and sinless, and you'll never do it again. What he's reminding us is you have been sanctified. You are being sanctified. You will be sanctified. There will be a place where you will be holy. But that's not what our hope is in. It's We're sanctified in Christ. That's where we're going. So these are those who are call, uh, sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. The word saint, again, it comes from sanctus. It's, it's called to be holy ones. It's, again, Paul is reminding them of their position. You have been made holy in Christ that's what you've been called to be that's that's what you god wants you to be you you've been called that way so what that means is is his calling remember paul said he was called by god to be an apostle paul's calling was unique it was very different on the road to Emmaus, or the road to uh, damascus jesus met him and just changed his life in an instant and told him, this is what your life is gonna be like. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. You must learn how much you will suffer for my name. And, and that's what you're gonna do. Paul, Paul's life was rerouted at that point. So he was called to be an apostle. It was very clear. We're not always given that clear of a call. We're, we're, sometimes we're not given the exact destination which we should get to, so, but we are called to be holy. We are called to be saints. So what you have to do is you have to be a holy engineer. You have to be a holy teacher. You have to be a holy police officer. You have to be a holy bank teller. You have to be a holy whatever it is that you do. The vocation, in some cases, God leaves up to us. But whatever you're doing, you are called to be a saint. That's what you're calling is, And so that's why he's telling the Corinthians this, is you are not acting like saints now. That's your calling. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Be like that, head in that direction. One of the temptations can be to think, well, it's just us. You know, just this little church and this is all there is. But that's not what Paul says. because you're called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This church is a small little building. Next to a junkyard in a desert, we are not the only ones that are the church of the Antelope Valley. Thank God there are other churches who are preaching the gospel, who are calling people to repentance, who are pointing people to Jesus Christ, and we are together with them called to be saints. That's encouraging because... And especially think about that church plant in LA, they felt alone and isolated. They had supporting churches and they had other people in, talking in their lives, but their day-to-day life was, we are surrounded by this corruption, by this, this overwhelming um, burden of finances and, and position and power. And we're just little tiny fish in that. And what would this have said to them? What, what, what might this have given them hope is, it's bigger than you, buddy. Jesus is doing a whole lot more than what he's doing in your little church plant. But he's doing stuff in your church plant, too. So hope in that. We are called to be holy with all of those who call on the name of Lord Jesus Christ in every place. Both their Lord and ours. We serve one God. He looks, it looks different what the service will be like here in the Antelope Valley versus down in L.A. versus in Nashville. All over the place, it's going to look different. But we serve one God. One Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's encouraging. That's what can help us power us through this and say, you're not alone in this struggle. Other people are facing this as well. So recognize that, that it's our Lord and their Lord. He's, he's Lord over all. And verse three is the standard kind of blessing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of Paul's standard blessing. Uh, grace is charis. Uh, that's more of a, a Greek concept. That was how you greet people would, would be grace. Um, The peace is more of a Hebrew blessing, and you would say to somebody, shalom, and that would be that peace idea. So Paul brings them together. He unites them, Jew and Gentile together. You're going to get the same blessing, peace and grace, whatever it is, may that be yours. Then he presses on. He goes to his prayer for the church, and what's going to happen in this is he's going to set up kind of a template for us, numerous issues that are going to come up in the letter. But he's going to front load, it. he's going to say it here, and he's going to begin to already put these things in place as he's going to go on to address them. So he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Jesus Christ. I thank God always because you earned grace, because you were good enough. Nope, it's because grace is freely given. Grace, I, I define grace as God's love that we can't earn. He has fixed his grace. I thank God because he gave you the grace. I don't thank you because you earned it. God fixed his grace on you. That that makes me overjoyed. It gives me hope that you can be sanctified, that you can call to be saints because God's grace is fixed on you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that hopeful? Verse five, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. This is what the grace has done. It, It has enriched them in every way in all speech and all knowledge. This issue of being enriched is going to come up again in chapter four. He's going to say, "What have you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast? As if you did not receive it, already you have what you all you want. Already you have become rich and become rich. You have become enriched. So this idea of enriching, and he's starting off. He, he front loads it with, "Why are you enriched? Because of the grace of God." Why do you have all that you need? Because of the grace of God. This isn't because you are some special kind of thing. I am grateful for the fact that God has given you grace and enriched you in everything. And then he goes on, what specifically is he speaking of? In all speech, in all knowledge. These are things that are going to be really important in chapters 12 through 14. Speech. I want you to prophesy. I want you to speak God's words. I want you to, that's what I want you to do. You have been given what you need because he's, he's equipped you in all of those things. So in all of that, including speech and knowledge and these words of knowledge that you have, this is all God's grace to you. So this is, this is something that he can thank God for because it's signs that the, the uh, Corinthians are not lost. The Spirit is actively working in them, even as messed up as they are, even as as bad as they're going with this stuff, the Spirit is still at work in them. They have the gifts of of speaking and of wisdom and of knowledge and all of those things. That's great news. And then in verse 6, he said, Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So Paul came to Corinth, he preached the gospel. That was the testimony of Christ, and it was confirmed in them. How was it confirmed in them? Because God came or he came and he preached the gospel of God and God sent his Holy Spirit and sealed them. So those gifts that they're exercising, that they're messing with, that they're they're not exercising carefully, that's a sign that they have been saved. The testimony of Christ has been confirmed in you. You You've received the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in you and he's going to lead you to sanctification. Then verse seven, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord jesus christ you're not lacking in anything as we're waiting for the return of the lord jesus christ we're in this time period between his first coming where he ascended to the throne and his second coming where he returns and in that interim in that spot in between he's given us great things he's given us his tremendous promises he sealed us with his holy spirit he completed his word to us we have all of these things but he hasn't finished redeeming us we still have the same body of flesh. We still wrestle against that, that body that wants to continue in those ways it was used to before. So in that interim time, in between the time that he comes and he comes back, we're waiting. And this is really important because he's, he's saying that we're waiting the revealing of Jesus Christ. And some folks in the church are saying Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Well, yes, he did, and we're waiting for him to come back. That's that's what we're waiting for. I saw a meme this week of, uh, from an atheist. There was a young boy saying Jesus is coming and then a middle-aged man saying Jesus is coming and then an old man saying Jesus is coming and then a tombstone that says Jesus is coming. And it was supposed to ridicule this idea that Jesus is coming back. And so many people replied and go, yeah, amen. <laughs> it totally backfired. Jesus didn't say I'm coming back in two weeks. He said when I return. And so, so far it's taken 2,000 years. Maybe it'll take another 2,000. I don't know. But the hope is we know how the story ends. Jesus will return; he will come back. And so, in the interim, as we wait for that, that's where our hope is. In Titus, he calls it it our blessed hope, is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, our hope is that Jesus is going to come back; that he will return, and and that is what gives us the strength and the power to go through all of this as well. Then, verse eight, he says, uh, "We hope we." uh, We wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, who will sustain you to the end. Who will sustain you to the end. The time between Jesus' ascension and his return is filled with trouble for us. It's not a smooth sail. There's just countless instances of people being persecuted, opposed, uh, executed. There's martyrdom. There are times when the church is ascendant, time when the church is is marginalized, time when the church is actually killed. We're going to have trouble. How do we get through that? How do we struggle through this? How do we face this opposition? How do we face this tribulation, this trial, this difficulty? Well, because he has strengthened us through it. We're not walking alone through this. Jesus didn't abandon us and go, Now I hope to see you at the end of the ride. He's strengthening us through this. He's walking with us through this. He is with us always. And so that's the great news. He's going to sustain us to the end. We have assurance that he'll get us there. So the, the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the promise is those who overcome. Well, how can we overcome Jesus? Because he's going to sustain us. Because he's going to make it happen. So let's walk with that hope. Let's walk with that energy. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to keep us guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the promise is when Jesus returns and he judges, we will stand before him aware of our own shortcomings, aware of our own sins, aware of everything we've done wrong, and we will stand before him guiltless because we have been justified in him. We have been sanctified in him. He's the one who's pronounced us holy. He's the one who's sustaining us. He's the one who's working in our lives. He's the, whole, the Holy Spirit is the one who's leading us to be sanctified to that day of complete sanctification. And in the meantime, we can stand before him at his terrible return when there are trumpet blasts and shouts of angels and thunder and lightning, and we can stand before him guiltless. What a blessing that is. What a hope that is, guiltless at his return. And then in verse 9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that, I think, is is the perfect summarization of how does all of this happen. You may not have noticed this, but the name Jesus Christ is mentioned in every verse of this except for one. What is he trying to drive into the heads of the, the, the Corinthians? And by the way, us. This is all made possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the fellowship with his son. Not just his lordship, not just his his being a dictator over us, but fellowship, that that family feeling, that closeness that he has with us. It's all possible in Jesus Christ. And so that's why what he says later in in the letter is, for I have determined to know nothing amongst you except for Christ and him crucified. He's already set that up here. Everything I'm about to tell you to do, every, everything that I'm going to correct you on, every misstep that you have done, everything that you failed to do, I, when I bring it up, all I want to do is preach to you Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to go with this. What we're going to get out of this letter is how do we live from Corinth to L.A. in this sanctification, in this process that God's doing? It's because we have fellowship with his son. God has made all of this possible. God has brought this about. He's faithful when we aren't. He's faithful when we move to a hard place, and he's faithful while we're there. He's faithful when your kids grow up and move away. He's faithful when you are no longer able to live on your own. He's faithful when that moment comes when it's time to die. He will be faithful through all of it, all the way through life. And so that fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ really is what makes the Christian life possible. It's how we can resist the call of Corinth, the call of L.A. in our lives to give in and and cave into these things, to to go the way of the flesh is because Jesus is the one who's been crucified for us. You are holy. You are sanctified. You are being sanctified. You are growing into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ because you have fellowship with him. This is all the work of God because of his grace. And I thank God for the grace in all of you. Really thank him for the grace in me because I'm familiar with how much I need it. But this is the great news. This is the strength and the power that he's going to give us through this book of First Col- uh, Corinthians. As we continue to go through this, we're going to run into issues that sound ancient but have a lot of really current application for us because humanity hasn't changed. We're not that different. we got bigger toys, more powerful toys. We're pretty much the same as we were at the fall. So the, the needs, the inclinations, the directions of the heart Aren't that different from Corinth to LA? They're pretty similar. So I really, really wish that Joshua and his team had preached through this book next. I wonder if their response might have been maybe we shouldn't bug out. That isn't what Paul said. Maybe by the grace of God, we continue to work here. Now, I'm not trying to throw post millennialism under the bus, but that subtle shift. what the gospel is about instead of individual people preaching the gospel to your neighbors and friends turning it into a systemic broad we're going to take over institutions within culture really can mess you up can throw you off your step i don't think it, it agrees with the picture that we're seeing here so as we go through corinthians get ready to hit some really interesting discussions i'm looking forward to it it's going to be a lot of fun i'm actually scared of some of this stuff too because i don't know how we're going to how are we going to resolve this But it's going to be great. We're going to get through it together. So with that in mind, let's close in prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, we're grateful. We thank God for the grace that we have in you. Lord, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit because you said you had to go away so that you could send your spirit. That was the arrangement is that Jesus would ascend and the spirit would descend. And Lord, you come upon all of your people. You you seal every single person in the new covenant with, with regeneration, a new heart. A heart that has the law written on it. You, you sanctify us. You make us holy in Jesus Christ. You continue to work in our lives in sanctification. And Lord, we look forward to that day when you return and we will be fully sanctified, guiltless in the moment of our judgment. And Lord, all of that rests in the person and the work of who Jesus Christ is. Thank you for that. Help us to live as if that's true. We ask this in Christ's name.